0: Contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. In times of spiritual and moral chaos, it can be hard to discern truth from error and to apply it to all of life. God's word is not silent, and we don't have to be either. This is Once for All Delivered with Caleb Castro and Andrew Smith.
1: Hello, OFAD lads and lasses. This is Andrew Smith. Co host of Once for All Delivered. We are continuing our series for the month of April, our mini series on the best of Bob, where we run back some of our best episodes, interviews, moments, etc., from Bobcast, what we did before we rebranded this show as Once for All Delivered last fall. Uh, before we get into that, just some personal news and updates for the hosts. Uh, I actually misreported last week on Caleb's URC candidacy exam. That is going on this week. I am recording this on Monday. It probably won't post until late Tuesday. So by then, his exam will probably be done. But at the time I'm recording, results are still pending. As far as my exam at Presbytery last week, I passed. So... Uh, Lord willing, I am on track to be ordained and installed as the pastor of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota next week, so coming up very soon. Uh, So that's what's going on with us. As far as what we're doing on the show this week, for the best of Bob, we're going to run back an interview that we had a lot of fun making, was a very good interview. Uh, time we had talking to Dr. Alan Strange, professor of church history at Mid-America Reformed Seminary. We recorded this around November of 2020, uh, when Caleb was still a student there, talking about a topic that doesn't seem to get a lot of attention in our Reformed sphere um, as far as good Reformed theology as applied to this topic. It is on beauty and aesthetics. We talked a little bit through an article by Bovink on the topic, as well as uh, Dr. Strange's own reflections, which, as is always the case with Dr. Strange, very insightful, very interesting, and uh, we hope you'll enjoy it, whether you're hearing it now for the first time or whether you've been with us from the beginning and get it the second time around. I think it's something that's worth going back to. So this is uh, On Beauty and Aesthetics with Dr. Alan Strange. This is the Bobcast, a podcast exploring Reformed theology through the works of Herman Bovink.
2: Welcome to another episode of Bobcast. We have a special guest here with us today. This is Dr. Alan Strange. Dr. Alan Strange, how are you? I'm very well. It's good to be with you. Yeah, it's good to have you here with us. Now, Dr. Strange is a professor here at Mid-America Reformed Seminary in Dyer, Indiana, where he teaches church history as well as apologetics, various other
3: courses. You did your Ph.D. through Wales, if I recall? That's right. Okay. Who did you do your dissertation on? I did my dissertation on Charles Hodge, his doctrine of the spirituality of the church, uh, which I think is a better nuanced doctrine than that of some of the Southern Brethren. And I think it has a lot of obvious relevance. <laughs> oh yeah, to the uh, to our current times, which which have some political uh, interest, shall we say? <laughs> we would love to be
2: able to speak with you more on that in another episode yes, at some that point. That'd be fun. Be a that lot would be of fun. fun
3: coming soon,
1: Hodgecast.
3: I also did my MDiv at Westminster, but the one out east. <laughs>
1: It's okay. (laughs) We'll we'll allow it.
2: I hear you have a vicarious anointing from Van Til. Yes. Yes, I do. (laughs) I do indeed. Was it uh, Van Til via Murray via Frame,
3: was it? (laughs) Yes. Well, that's right. John Frame, uh, it's an interesting story how he ended up laying hands on me in my ordination, uh, but he (laughs) did so. Uh, he was, among others, uh, Dick Gaffin gave me the charge, and St. Clair Ferguson preached the sermon, so I had a, a pretty good lineup there. <laughs>
2: oh, you are a op- strong, uh, well-known, and well-loved OPC man from, uh, in the midst of two URC students.
3: <laughs> so well, I, I love the URC. I feel very at home because, of course, uh, I'm one of the co-editors, along with Derek Vander of the Trinity Psalter Hymnal, mm-hmm. so we worked together on that, So uh, and being here I've worked a lot with the URC, preach in URC churches all the time, so I'm very committed to strengthening the ties uh, between the OPC and the URC. I think they're pretty natural ties if you really look at the, the whole situation, particularly the historic Dutch influence on the OPC and the commitment mm. to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Voss and Bavik, we love them. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Just as we love Mechin. Ventil, among yes, others. We do. Yeah, yeah and, and speaking on your work on editing the Trinity Psalter hymnal, now of course, there are you know, reasons of uh, your love for the church as not just a professor but a churchman
3: in which you engaged in that, but you're also a lover of the arts. Oh, very much. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. And we uh, we tried to have this book be one that reflects both the truth about who God is in all of its richness and fullness, as well as. The beauty or the glory, to use that preferred bobbing term, <laughs> for the Lord, because uh, we worship Him, don't we, in the beauty of holiness?
2: Mm hmm. Well, you know, that is uh, precisely what we want to get at here today, uh, why we have brought you on, uh, not only as a lover of the arts, but one who loves the Lord, one who uh, rejoices in uh, not only things that are true, not only things that are good, but on things that are beautiful, we want to get a little bit more into that. I guess on, on what beauty is. So today we're uh, we're looking at uh, Herman Bovink's essays on uh, religion, science, and society, particularly on his article that he has there on aesthetics. Now, this is a topic that maybe gets pushed a little bit to the side, uh, in my opinion. At least more recently, there, there has been some work done by some scholars, such as Jonathan King, among others. They are looking at thinking on the topic of a theological aesthetic. We're not going to get necessarily too deep in the weeds on that today so much as we want to again more of a simple understanding of what is aesthetics. What are aesthetics? Why are they important? You know, and uh, especially with an eye to how Bobbing spoke of this a little over 100 years ago.
1: So everyone seems to appreciate beauty in one way or another. We have this popular phrase, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, but I guess the question within those sort of statements is: What actually is beauty? Do we understand what beauty is? We're, we're all quick to say that things are beautiful, but what are we talking about when we say that something is beautiful?
3: Yeah, one thing uh, that your your listeners might find helpful in this because this is a this is a very complex and Mm -hmm. highly uh, developed topic, you know, it it is the case, let me just say this, you mentioned that, that as Christians, what we might call that fourth branch of philosophy doesn't get as much attention. Obviously, the first branch, metaphysics or ontology, the second branch, epistemology, the third branch, ethics, gets a lot of our attention. And because we have a revelational epistemology, we believe we know what we know, not simply by the autonomous use of our minds, that would be rationalism, such as you have with Plato, Uh or simply by looking at the world uh, and understanding things empirically, a bit of Aristotle. Uh, We're not rationalists. We're not empiricists. We believe that we have... The truth by revelation. We spend a great deal of time on those first three areas, and not quite as much uh, on the fourth on beauty. And uh, there is a little book I think that would help your listeners. Uh, This isn't strictly related to Bobbing, but there's a series that's published by Crossway called "Reclaiming the Christian Intellectual Tradition," and Paul Munson and Joshua Drake have a book called Art and Music, A Student's Guide, and it's just 112 pages, and they really deal with these issues, and that that series deals with that, and what they say is, let's begin with beauty, because it's what makes art, art, Um, and of course you may quibble over the meaning of beauty, but they say, ordinary people have always known that the reason we draw and sing is to please viewers with beautiful drawings and hearers with beautiful songs. And they go on to talk about the different conceptions of beauty. And of course, they mention, obviously, they come to the, the 19th century, the late 19th century adage, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And that's among us, today, not understood to be a worldview, which it is. It's a postmodern conception. So what what they're arguing in this book is even Christians will say beauty is in the eye of the beholder as if that's just a truism, Mm. uh, when in fact it's a reaction of more recent decades of coming in terms of postmodernism in which any objective standard of beauty has been displaced by an utterly subjective conception of it. And, of course, the notion that there is no objective standard of beauty, Christians would never say there's no objective standard of truth. They would not say there's no objective standard of behavior. We would would affirm that, and we really shouldn't here be total subjectivists. There's a subjective aspect of of everything, but so is there an objective aspect. And, of course, we would say God is our standard for this. Mm
2: Now, we're speaking on beauty here. We've used a little bit of the, you know, uh, some of the technical term of aesthetic. Um, Right. Early in the essay from Bob he goes and uh, makes a reference to 18th century philosophers following Leibniz on the employment of the term uh, aesthetic. And he he essentially says that what was meant by this term is the observing of beauty, the harmony and completeness of an observed thing, or uh, aesthetics as a theory of beauty, the art of thinking beautifully or the art of taste. Would you find that an adequate definition of like of aesthetics or is there something maybe more we should add to that? A theory of beauty, thinking beautifully?
3: Bavink, of course, is not saying what this should be. He's trying to describe right. a post-enlightenment mm-hmm. development of that. And I think that's pretty on the mark. Mm-hmm. The classical view of beauty is that I've just mentioned a post-modern view, which mm-hmm. is totally subjective. Uh-huh. Uh, over uh-huh. against that, the classical view of beauty is that it is objective, manifesting perfect form, proportion, symmetry. And in such a worldview, beauty becomes the purpose of life. And aesthetics provides the basis for ethics. Now, we have a problem with that, and Mm -hmm. he has a problem with Mm -hmm. that. That goes to a kind of aestheticism. That's what dominates in the classical world. Form is made absolute. And you can think of how, uh, again, uh, Munson says in his book, Like the media bewitched teen starving herself before the mirror, we devote our lives to the pursuit of some created formal standard and see that the result is not beautiful at all, but wicked and ugly. So there's a problem with that kind of aestheticism, even as there's a problem with the skepticism of postmodernism. We don't don't want either of those. But yes, he's right to sense that in the post-Enlightenment era, you think of the aestheticism of an Oscar Wilde who is quite an immoral Mm -hmm. man, and it tracks with that that famous phrase, the the French don't care what you do as long as you pronounce it correctly. (laughs) See, that's a kind (laughs) of aestheticism. Uh, Mm -hmm. We don't want that, Mm -hmm. on the one hand, that this kind of making a fetish of beauty. Mm -hmm. In the fashion world, you can see Mm -hmm. how that's done. On the other hand, you've seen in particularly postmodern art in which God is rejected and chaos is embraced. Mm -hmm. You've seen this chaotic expression that really is almost a glorification of the ugly. You have these extremes, and of course we're called back to a revelational biblical pattern of a proper balancing. Between the objective and the subjective.
1: I think it's really interesting you bring that up, because if we look at, oh, about the last century or so, there does seem to be a real shift in art and in creative expression towards the bizarre and the perhaps even the deviant, where the idea with art is to press boundaries and to even make things deliberately that are disturbing to people. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, shock value.
3: Right. And, you know, it's interesting, uh, Andrew. Uh, of course, I've, I've noted this in my many, many trips to the museums as I belong to museums and trips to the orchestra and the opera. One of the things that I have noted with respect to, say, the, the orchestra is that um, we seem to get to a point in the 90s and the early aughts where so much new music, when, when there was a, a newly commissioned piece, that was being played by the orchestra. Um, I remember being with some good friends and my wife and I, after it was over, uh, the fellow uh, from the other couple looked at me and we had heard this music that was extraordinarily depressing and dark and confusing and chaotic, uh, not beautiful at all. And uh, he said, how are we supposed to respond to this? And I said, I think the only question remains is, why we don't all go and throw ourselves off the Ben Franklin Bridge. This was in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. We were listening to the Philadelphia Orchestra at that time, and it really was. It was a question of, you know, what do you do after hearing that? Uh, you're certainly There's certainly no sense of beauty. In fact, there was a revulsion. And I'll never forget at one of these concerts I was at once, we were in an area where there were a, a number of graduate music students sitting, And the composer, as is often the case when these new pieces are played, the composer was there. And when the conductor went off stage and came back for the first curtain call, the composer accompanied him. And there was very light applause. The audience didn't really care for it. And this one of these music students sitting in our area yelled, if I may say this on your program, Mm -hmm. I hope I can. Mm -hmm. It's crap and then the audience started applauding that comment. I've never quite seen anything like it. It was embarrassing for the composer. But I mean, it was really it was really a difficult piece to have to sit through. So yeah, we've gone from in the classical world having a kind of fetish and making an idol out of our our particular definition of beauty Uh, to a kind of embracing of this. But what I've noticed here at the symphony is in the recent decade or or decade or two, there's been kind of a turn from that. It seems like they reached the bottom of that. Hmm. And I've noted in the last decade especially a lot of the newer composed music, it has a a recognizable melody Hmm. and the harmony that accompanies it in the strings, in the winds, in the brass. Actually, it has mm. some beauty in it, so it's an interesting thing. I you you wonder if some ways we've bottomed out on that, and people mm. start saying, you know,
2: <laughs> wait a minute. <laughs> mm. I want to get back to the post uh, this kind of postmodern and uh, contemporary perception of art in a little bit here. So I think that, that that's a very I mean that that's a very good point you raise in building on some kind of the uh, a little bit of the background of the idea of aesthetics or beauty. There's a lot of questions that have have popped up over time that philosophers since the cosmic period have been dealing with things of even just you know if there's a variety of what might be considered beautiful is there a highest degree or objective standard of beauty is fondness for beauty innate or developed yes why <laughs> it, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and uh, among in that same way where we say yes you know uh, why would this then even be an important topic for Christians uh, why bother with a the theological aesthetic why isn't that we're just content with, say, something like truth or with morality? Oftentimes, they might come across a church where, say, there's more moralistic preaching at times, even a concern with uh, personal piety. Others might throw very heavy on the information, doctrinal, luxury kind of preaching. Yeah. We don't really get a lot of aesthetical preaching, though, do we? Why should Christians care?
3: Well, it's interesting that you say that. I think a well-crafted sermon is a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. Because it sets forth God in all of his glory, and Christ as central in that as the supreme revelation of God. And uh, of course, on the one hand, right, Isaiah tells us that there was no beauty in him that we should desire him. So there was there was something about Christ in his humiliation, in his weakness that, in entering into our condition, part of that is a kind of lack of beauty. Sin isn't beautiful. (laughs) And insofar as he took that upon himself uh, judicially and and bore our sin and paid its penalty, there's something profoundly the opposite of beauty. And yet there's also, I mean, the cross is at once, it's the the irony of the cross we often speak of. The cross is at once the ugliest thing ever because man is seeks to put God to death and at the same time of course what we see as Owen put it in the death of Christ is the death of death so the very the very same act might you say reflect on the one sense our part of it our putting him to death is is the ultimate anti-beauty and yet his taking the wrath of God for us for our sins is the ultimate beauty. So it really is, we have a revelational epistemology, and so all of our understanding of beauty is revelational, either in terms of Scripture, but mostly, more broadly, in terms of general revelation. And the reason, when I said, when you asked sort of the nature-nurture question, we're created in the image of God. And so we have both an understanding of beauty, we have an intimate relationship, we have a capacity for it, we have a taste for it, but insofar as we're sinful, that's perverted it in various ways. And people, as they move away, as people are on the fuller expression of their sinfulness, that's where you can get the production of art. Art, which is a field which is dedicated to the expression of beauty, and you get anti-beauty in it and it's an expression of our sin. And I don't mean by that it's just that, you know, Bach and Mozart and Beethoven are beautiful. There's all kind of contemporary music that's beautiful. I don't just mean that classical art is beautiful. There's all kind Mm -hmm. of contemporary art that's beautiful. So It isn't just a particular style, but it's within the genre. It's if you're playing whatever genre you're playing, you know, take jazz or take any number, take various expressions of rock. I mean, you can Mm. say within this, you can see, and beauty is, in a sense, following the rules, that has something to do with it, what rules well, the rules that are there in general revelation I mean you know the Pythagorean common how you how you tune a piano I mean this is part of general revelation. What harmonizes is part of general revelation now it 's fine to use disharmony for particular purposes, but a piece of unending disharmony is unkind to the ears, is not pleasant to Uh hear. You need a right mixture. But I mean, you find disharmonies, you find interesting kinds of syncopation in Mozart, just Uh to take him as an example. I think it's important in terms of we have an ethics which comes from God, which is both we see in general revelation and we see in Scripture. And I would say it's true also Uh for aesthetics. That brings to
2: mind a point that Bob Inc. raises in uh, pages 254 and 255 of this article, this essay, where he states, uh, In this world, nothing exists by itself. Everything is interrelated. The works we produce have this in common. They are the revelation of our ability, and to that extent are all art. And he goes on to say, Beauty always awakens in us images, moods, and affections that otherwise would have remained dormant and not even known to us. Beauty thus discloses us, to ourselves and also grants us another new glimpse into nature and humanity. It deepens, broadens, enriches our inner life, and it lifts us for a moment above the dreary, sinful, sad reality. Beauty also brings cleansing, liberation, revival to our burdened and dejected hearts. So he's he's very much pinpointing what you're saying there, I believe, uh I mean essentially that there is a, a spiritual perception. When it comes down to it, in yes. art, you mentioned contemporary artists. You know, this, this maybe brings a pressing question for uh, us and our listeners: uh, Is listening to Lady Gaga then in regarding her music as art a spiritual perception?
3: Well, I have to admit, my, uh, my, my, uh, I'm not, I'm not really informed there, but I, I, I don't, I, I'm not one who just makes pronouncements. I'll say this: I was speaking to some people. Uh, I've learned my lessons about this because I was speaking to some people, and I don't know where your listeners are on this. And different people, people might be surprised to hear me say this, but I was I was speaking some years earlier, and I just said something, customarily dismissive of rap, and uh, almost as a genre, saying it's not really music. Well, it isn't music in every sense of the common structure of melody and harmony. And I got challenged by some people, and I've done a little study since, and I understand how it is a proper art form, and I understand how there is good in there. I was even able to recognize and to say, this person, in terms of the the particular form, is a good rapper over against this person, who's no. not such a good rapper. So, I, I mean, I do believe that within contemporary rock music, you can speak about better and less. But I'm simply not qualified to speak about Lady Gaga. I'm sorry. I don't. <laughs>
2: well, let's twist the question yes. then a little bit. Uh, this, is, this is a question that Bob Inc. puts for us on page 256, uh, related, not about Lady Gaga or rap. But uh, he, he asks, is it only the form that counts so that the artist is totally free in his choice of material and may display the most intimate and scandalous as long as it is done in a beautiful manner? Or is beauty essentially bound to content as well as to truth and goodness? And even if it were possible, is it really permissible to break this triad? What he's getting at then is where he asks, is Satan beautiful
3: if he appears as an angel of light? No, I think that's an excellent question, and I think it's one of the mistakes of a certain classical approach, or what I called earlier the aestheticism that you get in an Oscar Wilde, uh, that as long as something is done with style, with class, with a certain sort of savoir-faire, to use a (laughs) French word, right, um, that it's all right. And we would reject that. No, we would say that there is, in fact, an intimate connection Uh, And that that which is beautiful must in some sense be true. Let me illustrate it this way. I wrote an article a couple of years ago on Bach and Wagner. I was asked to review uh, books on Johann Sebastian Bach, who not only is one of the inarguably greatest composers of all times, but was a Christian and wrote his music from that viewpoint. He would write uh, ad maiorum dea glorium, to the greater glory of God. All throughout the actual manuscripts, you will see difficult places. You will have I-I, a little I-I, which is uh, "Uve Yesu, help me Jesus. He's writing there. Mm-hmm. And so he was explicitly writing in this way, and we can see how his music gives glory to God. Richard Wagner was an anti-Semite, was personally a very miserable sort of individual, but he wrote rather remarkable music, and I say this about that. One does find in Wagner's music, not a positive treatment of the gospel, but an aching ode to its absence. In spite of himself, Wagner tells the truth in his music. So it's beautiful, but he tells the truth in spite of himself, uh, particularly I'm thinking of his Ring of the Nibelung, and I say all that is transcendently there and that the drama cannot bear points to something else, something besides and beyond itself, testifying that all great art tells the truth, either explicitly, as in Bach, or in spite of itself, as in Wagner. And I say this, in listening just now to a superb performance Of the immolation scene at the end of the ring, the four operas, this is at the end of the whole thing, I am struck afresh with how full of promise never realized, of something reached far yet never touched, this music is. The wistfulness of the theme and the high strings joined by the woodwinds then brass is heartbreaking. Mm. It cannot deliver what it promises, but then neither can anything in this world." Yeah. Only our great God can deliver here and supremely in the world to come. So there can be things okay. in this world that that you think of movies, you think of books that have as their theme some version of the greatest story ever told, which is that, that the world is a mess and needs redeeming. And we could look at great works of art after great works of art. And so, you know, there's a part of them in terms of the antithesis. We know that unbelief is opposed to God and doesn't speak his truth in that Mm -hmm. sense. But because of common grace, right, Mm -hmm. we know that in spite of itself, uh, it will often testify in remarkable ways to the truth. And so much of art Testifies to our fallen condition and our need for redemption. Now, what's looked to for redemption Mm -hmm. isn't truly redeeming. Mm -hmm. Only Jesus Christ is. Mm -hmm. But it shows you, I mean, Lewis talks a lot about how longing gets expressed in art and how longing sort of uh, points us to the ultimate one who alone can fill our longing. And this is, I think, why, why, and I'm sympathetic to this, why Edwards, uh, takes up the theme of beauty so much in in his work uh, as a Protestant theologian in the not, in the 18th century, and I, I think this you know this is recognized in some of the work on Bavink, Uh for Edwards in both say his work on the Trinity or particularly in his nature of true virtue, he develops this theme because for Edwards what's primary is not the intellect as it would be for some, or the will as it would be for some others, but the affections. And the affections are attracted, have to do with attraction to that which you most love, which is most lovely, which is most beautiful. And so there's a sense in which whatever we think beauty is, ever how we may define it, whether classically or postmodernly, that is that to which we're attracted so beauty is that. So Edwards sees that in terms of God, that the regenerated, renewed soul is attracted to God. Mm. And there's different ways you can criticize Edwards on that, but I think that's an interesting aspect of that that use of beauty. And I think mm. it's it, it's not brought out and developed as much in Bavik, but I think that's also there, that, you know, part of beauty is... Over just against the intellect or the will is the magnetism, if you will. Beauty draws you to itself. I remember as a young man when I was going through the change and before you know whatever girls are kind of and then I remember I remember I was with some some of my brothers literal brothers and I had just gone through this and we were out somewhere and a strikingly beautiful woman walked by and they were quite all bemused by my reaction because before that I it just wouldn't have it didn't attract me as much and and they could see that I was they said well we can see what Alan's looking at and obviously we talked about the sinful aspect of that, but there's an aspect of that 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 simply has to do with beauty, and you, you, your eyes are open, and you're being attracted to something, and beauty always involves that attraction. You know, you know, the music you like. Why do you keep returning to it? Art is. There are books that we may read for information. There are books that we read for different purposes, but books that really, in in a sense, are beautiful, yeah. are are works of art, are music. We return to it again and again. The music we like. You know, and, and when I go to the to the art museum in the city, the the, the Chicago uh, Museum, you know, there are always certain rooms I go into and I look at certain paintings and you might say, well, you've seen those paintings, but I want to see them again. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's the same, your favorite movies, you don't watch them once and never again.
1: What Bavinck proposes then in this article, he talks about created beauty and art as an analogy for the glory of God. I guess the question this might raise, first of all, what does beauty share in common with the glory of God? How do we see the glory of God reflected in beauty? And what does this have to do maybe with other elements of Bavinck's theology? And then to add on with that, I think uh, especially when we think of, you made some statements
2: a little bit ago on the cross, Right, the in the beauty of that and the anti-beauty of that, perhaps maybe a little bit of an elaboration, and then other things in the world, uh, how we can analogously see the Lord's glory.
3: But to put that article, the Bavink article, in context of his theology, of course, uh, in the second volume of the Reformed Dogmatics, he speaks about in, in from pages two fifty-two to fifty-five. Uh, I have this in the English here. I'll get my other brethren in here who who would only cite it in the Dutch, but uh, I'm working from the English. Uh, he has that section in terms of God's communicable attributes, right, and the glory of God. God's glory is communicable. It's not an incommunicable attribute. In other words, it's not an attribute that marks him as God in such a way that we have no share in it as we would speak of that in terms of uh, the uh, infinity of God or the eternity of God, the aseity of God, those things that really mark him as God. No, this is something that we as creatures have a share in, but of course, it's a different kind. It's not just a different degree, you might say. Uh, And he notes the words there, kavod, uh, in the Hebrew, and doxa, in the Greek... He's comfortable with those words especially. They're very revelational. This is part of his revelational epistemology. We know what we know because God has revealed it uh, in nature and in Scripture. Here he's talking about Scripture, and we're created in that image, and thus we, too, uh, reflect that. Uh, We reflect that throughout the whole part of our being. And so glory, I would say this to note, glory is something that is broader than beauty. Glory has something about it, of course, because we know what the word in Hebrew, there's that Latin word that comes from that, that we use for the kavod has about it a certain weightiness, right? And we use the word in Latin gravitas. We might say that a person lacks gravitas. So I would say that goes beyond the, the, the ordinary conception of just beauty. There's there's something more to glory than beauty, but beauty is certainly part of glory. I think he's right to locate it in the way that he does as part of glory because it keeps it from becoming untethered to truth, to goodness. It keeps it from becoming, in in the way he's concerned with Augustine, for example, and others who use this in a in a platonic way as you know plato has a view of the transcendentals as if they're things that exist in themselves plato believes in justice with a capital j and beauty with a capital b well we don't believe in those things as having some kind of independent, separate existence. We believe in God with a capital G, and whatever is called justice is a reflection of his character. Whatever is called beauty is a reflection of his character, or glory is a reflection of his character. So he situates it in his theology. He rightly situates everything in God, so you don't have the platonic mistake You don't have the Gnostic error of these sort of free-floating transcendentals, Mm -hmm. which, you know, you can go in the direction of saying, is this beautiful in God? Is this just in God? And the reason, he's the standard of beauty. He's the standard of justice. Mm -hmm. He doesn't conform to some external standard. Mm -hmm. All the standards are a reflection of who he is. Mm -hmm. And Bavic's theology makes that manifestly clear
1: i think that's a really interesting reflection because like i know for myself when i'm looking at like literature looking at even things like film and television and that kind of stuff usually the things that are good are the things that somehow reflect to us something about god's attributes like for instance his justice i mean most artistic expression that's telling some kind of story Usually, we like the ones where the bad guys get what's coming to them and the good guys win, you know, that reflection of justice, that reflection of truth, that reflection of integrity. I think one of the sad things of our age is that a lot of art, a lot of expression is distorting that and trying to push back against or push away from that. But in general, you can even see sort of this common grace reflection in art in that, often the story that's being told does reflect to us something about God and something about his nature and even his law.
3: Andrew, if I may jump in here, I I agree entirely with what you're saying. Let Let me give some examples, a little concrete example. I just saw recently The Highwayman, which is a much better account of Bonnie and Clyde than the 1967 film with Beatty and Dunaway. And it's better because it tells the truth much better. The earlier film glorifies them, and you see in this film, The Highwaymen, those that do glorify Bonnie and Clyde are portrayed as fools. In other Mm. words, it shows you people who think Bonnie and Clyde were wonderful, but they're fools. And it really comes out on the side of they receive justice. Now, let me give you another example Mm. of, uh, of a film. It also is an opera. If you're familiar with the film Dead Man Walking... The purpose of that film is anti-capital punishment, and I don't know if, if your listeners remember this, but I remember it so vividly. I saw it. My wife and I saw it in the theater. This Back in the days when you could go into a place called the cinema or the movies and actually watch something with other people what? sitting there <laughs>
1: – um, Different times. Yes,
3: yes, yes. Nobody had on masks, uh, except I think somebody robbed the popcorn stand. But no. Um, so we're there, and uh, Dead Man Walking, and it's uh, it, it's Sister Jean-Proujant, Préjean, is this uh, advocate against the death penalty. The the director. There's this brilliant scene where there's a cross cutting between this heinous act, this man who is on death row heinously killed a young couple in its cross-cut, his murder of them and his abuse and murder of them, and then what the state was doing to him in executing him. And the idea of the filmmaker was clearly, and I read literature about it, was to portray that what he did to these innocent victims was the same as what the state was doing to him as a guilty but let me tell you something it did not communicate that you saw what he did to these people that was was a horrible crime and sin and the state was treating him with every consideration he had clerical presence there he had support he had there was dignity in his death in other words it was the state was clearly carrying out justice whereas what he did was a heinous, unaccountable crime to these people who had done nothing to him. It actually showed the justice of what he was getting. I mean, to me, it did. Mm-hmm. And so I rejoiced. I said, "Here is here is as clear of instances I've seen, of." God bringing forth a different truth, but God delights to do that. I I mentioned the irony of the cross. Think about when the high priest stands there and says contemptuously to the rest of the religious leaders, you know nothing at all. It is better that one man die than that the whole nation die. And the text tells us itself that He's not saying this with any good intention. He's saying it with all his evil and all his hatred and all his Mm. maliciousness, and yet God has a greater and higher and better purpose in it. God means by it that this death of our Lord Jesus Christ Mm. is for his people, the nation, of course, that was the visible church then. It's for the visible church which now exists worldwide. So again, you tie that in with a cross. At the one point, you see they meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And you, yeah. so much of this, I mean, I, I saw that in that film, uh, how that it's testifying, seeking to testify against the death penalty, when in fact, it ended up, in my view, testifying for it. It showed the justice of it. And that's sort of what you, I, I think, think—we're yeah. saying, Andrew, about how you can see justice, but you can see it Even in spite of the intention of the artist Mm. at times, you can see something. Mm. That's God's common grace, because I, I think common grace means that sin is restrained in the unbeliever so that he actually can testify to things in God's world that he wouldn't otherwise testify to, even as the antithesis means that remaining sin is in the believer so that we're not as good as our profession is. And they're not as bad as their profession is, their denial of God. God ameliorates that. Because if you take to its extreme the unbelieving view, that's hell. That's hell. And God is gracious. Hell on earth is not what we have. This is the best unbelievers will ever have it. That's a sobering thought. Unbelievers will never have it any better than it is here. Where they go afterwards, I'm talking about people who remain in unbelief, it's going to be obviously worse. And this is this is the worst believers ever have it. I mean, that's just a great point to remember, even as you're counseling people. Mm-hmm. Uh, not to make light of what they're going through. No, no, no. But to encourage them that whatever they're going through, at its depth, the next world is much, much better. Incomparably so. Mm-hmm. And, of course, beauty, wow, that's also whatever we perceive of it here. I wanted to mention this about the next world. Because now, if we were to enter the next world, Paul talks about being caught up to the third. We don't know what this all means. but And, of course, it's also before the coming of Christ and the renewal of all things. But if we were to be somehow taken in our present state into the next world, that is to say we in our regenerated but unglorified states were to be taken into the next world, I don't think we could even see or make sense of what we see. Mm -hmm. We need to be glorified. We need to be brought to perfection in our redemption. Mm -hmm. We need to be glorified so that in a new world, we will have the eyes to see what really is there. I don't think we have the full eyes to see even what's here. Mm -hmm. I think here we get glimpses of even the beauty that in a world that is not fully renewed and that will not be what it will be in the next world. I think beauty is something that is always a call to heaven. It Mm. should be a taste for heaven and a taste for what's to come. The descriptions, I think you need to say in Revelation, you know, we, we understand we're not coming from a school, so to speak. We're not coming from a of a method of interpretation that says, yeah. let's take this in the most literal of ways. And so people say, well, what is this description of these 12 stones, yeah. mean? These, these precious gems? What's that all about? Yeah. Clearly, it's about beauty. Yeah. It's about beauty. So whatever it actually appears to be, when we get there, what it's like. What we've been told is it is beautiful beyond real description. It's metaphorically described. It's hinted at. Mm -hmm. It's hinted at. God's telling us it's going to be so lovely this is the way I describe it to you now mm. but the reality is never less than the description it's more than a description
2: mm. well, I want to hit uh, two points on that real fast as we uh, move towards the end here for one thing as you're saying I believe uh, Bob Inc makes note in uh, chapter one of the Wonderful Works of God that aesthetics and art essentially has something of a function of idealizing uh, idealizing uh, a world to come uh, whether we know it or not we are portraying or imagining some form of an ideal world. Well, he, he makes note here in this essay on aesthetics uh, and regarding general revelation. The Lord's name is precious in the whole earth, and while he did not leave us without a witness, he also fills our hearts with happiness when we observe that glory. When observing and enjoying true beauty, it is not man who bestows his affections and moods on the observed object, but it is God's glory that meets and enlightens us in our perceptive spirits through the works of nature and art humanity and the world are related because they are both related to god the same reason the same spirit the same order lives by both by god's grace beauty is observed felt and translated by artists it is prophecy and guarantee that this world is not destined for ruin but for glory and he goes on and making the distinction however that he's not equating god with art or art with god he's saying art cannot in fact art cannot replace worship nor can the theater replace the church Nor can Lessing's Nathan replace the Bible. (laughs) Beauty can prophesy about the promised land and can give us a glimpse from a distance as from Mount Nebo. But it is only religion, reconciliation, and peace with God that ushers us into the Canaan of peace. And I believe this is very much uh, in line with what you yourself have been saying here. Now, there, there are uh, various camps and some in Christian uh, circles who might look to renew, uh, transform aspects of the earth to uh, redeem various areas of the earth. That's not what Bavink is saying here, though. These sort of camps might at times cite those such as uh, Kuiper or Bobbing. I mean, that, that's not what he's saying.
3: No, that no. is not what he's saying.
2: What is then the function of art when it comes down to it? How, how do Christians carry art or conceive of art in the various
3: areas of life? I think that, let me just say, to, to kind of put a fine point on what I was saying earlier and, and tie it in here, anti-beauty, we've talked about anti-beauty, that's what you see, particularly in the 20th century and coming into the 21st, we saw in art, music, we'll just take that, but you, you could go across the board, literature, you know, art broadly conceived, we saw a lot of what, what Andrew particularly was talking about is as things produced – to make us uncomfortable, to make us, you know, not beauty but anti-beauty, that points towards hell. Mm -hmm. That points towards hell. That's the ultimate end and the logical conclusion, you might say, of such. Even as all great art, that which manifests beauty, and there is a certain sense of we know beauty when we see it, I don't want to say there's no in the eye of the beholder, But we know when we see it because we're made in the image of God, and when we're rightly operating (laughs) as renewed people, particularly in His image, uh, or even as those uh, by common grace, we're we're, you know we know that this is beautiful sound, we know this is beautiful sight, that calls us to this other world and higher uh, thing. How are Christians? than to engage. I think Bach is a great example. I don't want to just leave it with him. He seems almost superhuman. He actually wrote more music than most people could physically copy in a lifetime. We don't know how he was so productive, but certainly the answer is he trusted in the Lord that the Lord helped him. But what an artist is doing uh, whether they're a sculptor, whether they're a composer, a painter, we could just go through all the arts. Who is a Christian? Uh, and I, I know plenty of artists who are Christians, very good artists of all in all these areas. And they're very conscious of what they do. Whatever you do, right, do it to the glory of God. They're conscious of doing it to the glory of God. And they're seeking to bring every thought captive to the Mm -hmm. obedience of Christ. There's a great consciousness that what they do is not with eye service as men pleasers, but serving the Lord. Mm -hmm. So that this is something that they're making that will be viewed by their fellow man and they want to be enjoyed. But it's it's being made as a kind of a sacrifice, a a sacrifice of praise to God. Because Mm -hmm. all of our work should be seen as a kind of sacrifice of praise to God, Mm -hmm. praise and thanksgiving. To God, and obviously, then it's going to it's going to benefit uh, others when we, when we do what we do uh, for His glory. Now, the thing is, when people produce or perform in accordance with the gifts God has given them, even if they're not seeking to glorify God, maybe they seek not to, but yet it still does because once. I was listening to Luciano Pavarotti, and someone came into the room, and they said, is he a Christian? And I said, well, he's leaving his wife. He's in an affair with his secretary, and, you know, he's a traditional Roman Catholic. But, no, I don't believe that he is a believer from a number of things. Uh, I said, but he sure sings like one, doesn't he? Mm -hmm. And they were like, what do you mean? Mm -hmm. And I said – is this voice beautiful and they said yes and I said this glorifies God whether he intends mm-hmm. to glorify God or not by it there is an objective glorification of God because this is such a lovely voice he's singing beautiful music here uh, and I, I just think that's a powerful thing uh, you it ultimately can't detract from God's glory even if the even if the producers <laughs> are mm-hmm. seeking to do so like I said in that film where they're mm-hmm. arguing one thing and it comes out to me as a believer arguing something very different, standing Mm -hmm. on its head what they're trying to argue. I I mean, I think we see in any number of ways our God reigns, Mm -hmm. and he will have his way here. And, you know, you think of Joseph's life. You think of all the things that happened. And, And we don't mean to say we don't excuse his brothers, and we don't say that what his brothers did to him wasn't truly evil. It was, but God turned it to good. Mm-hmm. And the good and the beautiful are intimately connected and related. I mean, mm-hmm. something which is good, there's a beauty in kindness, isn't there? There's a beauty in love, in showing mm-hmm. favor and affection. So yeah, I think the beautiful, though, is something that all of us can strive for uh, in whatever field we're in, that we do what we do to the best of our ability, but we do it as a sacrifice of praise to him. Mm. And it will most benefit mankind. That's good.
1: One final question in light of the things we've discussed here then today. When we look at the church now, in many corners of it, we see this sort of, I guess you could almost say, fundamentalist impulse to resist culture, avoid culture, run away and hide from culture. On the flip side, we see this impulse that maybe goes too far to the other extreme where we need to embrace all of culture and attempt to redeem and, and transform all of culture. I guess just a practical question as Christians living in this world, what are some maybe brief pointers, brief advice on how we ought to think about and engage with the arts and with culture and with this task of, of seeking out and and understanding beauty? well, that's a great question. I wasn't really planning to speak to this specifically, but
3: one journal produced monthly that comes to my mind that your readers may be interested in checking it out, maybe you've talked about it before, is called The New Criterion. And The New Criterion was founded uh, by some folks who were coming off the New York Times when they were sort of going away from any standards whatsoever. And The New Criterion is not explicitly Christian. It has Christians and non-Christians that write for it. The basic assumption or sort of the core value of the journal is that it believes that there are standards of excellence that are discoverable in each of the fields in terms of the disciplines as they present themselves. They have traditional uh, approaches to music, to art, to many things. That doesn't mean that they don't like contemporary things, but they they don't believe it's just anything goes kind of view. They they believe that there are standards, and each issue uh, has poetry in it. Each issue has of a very high level has uh, music review, theater review, uh, and I mean theater, I don't mean cinema. <laughs> Because uh, I, I don't think it has that in it. It uh, doesn't typically review films. The National Review reviews films. Ross Douthat reviews films, and then he also mm-hmm. writes for the New York Times, which are good. John Simon used to do for them, and I think John Simon was one of the finest film critics and theater critics there was. So there are, there are critics that are very good that you can look to. So you can look, like I say, there are music reviews, there are art reviews, there are theater reviews, there are literature reviews, all in this book mm-hmm. called The New Criterion. But also to – I read regularly the New York Review of Books, which is the premier intellectual, very liberal book review in the country. Uh, the New York Times uh, book review, which is in the, in the Sunday Times. So I, um, I think these are places to, to, to look. And I think just it, as Christians uh, get involved, uh, get, uh, have a membership in your local museum. Go At least if you don't subscribe to the orchestra, I mean, you can get subscriptions to the orchestras that are maybe just four or five uh, concerts. If you want to get involved with the opera, uh, I'll be happy to talk to you about that. I have articles on this. I have articles in New Horizon uh, that Mm -hmm. give, uh, which is the OPC's magazine. I mentioned that that I was quoting from that uh, uh, Bach Wagner. I have an article back in um, uh, March 2015 of the New Horizons called the opera and orchestral music, which is an introduction to it all. Sort of like where do I get started in orchestral music? It's just such a huge maze. And I basically advise you, I give you a path through this kind of introduction to the to the to the orchestra and introduction to the opera. New Horizons magazine of the OPC, March
1: 2015. Uh, we want to thank you for coming on, Doctor Strange. My and pleasure. Uh, just do you have any final words? Is there anything you're working on? Anything you'd like to tell our listeners? Where they can find more about you or any projects you might be working on?
3: Well, none of my projects have directly to do with aesthetics. I'm uh, I'm writing in Ordained Servant, which is uh, the OPC online uh, journal for office bearers. I'm writing a commentary. It's being serialized on our. Um, Form of Government and Book of Discipline. Uh, It's a bit fuller uh, than the URC may be uh, uh, accustomed to. So, I mean, you might think uh, that's not a long work. Oh, no, there's a lot more there to talk about. So
2: it's 50 pages. Uh, (laughs)
3: um, And I'm also uh, preaching through and using the larger catechism, the Westminster Larger Catechism, and I plan to publish that. There's just not a lot published. Sermons on that. Uh, trying to get the, the Presbyterians to do some catechetical preaching, so uh, which I think is very valuable for teaching doctrine. Again, if people assume – I tell the fellows, I say, you know, all these things you assume that people know, you need to talk to your people. Go in their homes and talk to them. And don't think you don't need to teach them. You do. <laughs> and it's, it's not that they're not extraordinarily capable people, and some people are going to know a lot but people that you think would know won't necessarily know but in terms of in terms of our subject today i think the best thing is just to if you're an artist produce what you do to the glory of god and if you say well i can't play an instrument or anything well you can listen to these things and youtube of course i'm so thankful for that that has opera singers on it that i never saw i wasn't alive to see going back into the 30s. And it's amazing what you can hear on there, who is on there. So we have more available than we've ever had. I mean, this stuff is all at your fingertips. Great works of art of every sort are at your fingertips. And I'm, I'm doing uh, more work in these areas. There's, there's some volumes that have come out on uh, Wagner's uh, ring, a two-volume set just on the ring, talking about all the theological and philosophical themes in it I was supposed to go with some friends, including Derek Thomas. We were going to hear The Ring here in Chicago uh, back in April, but Mm -hmm. COVID canceled the whole thing. Uh, Sorry for that. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm hoping to get back to that and to write this larger piece on The Ring. I did listen to it otherwise, uh, because obviously I've heard it many times. There's plenty to do. There's plenty out there. We are we are in a tough time right now, because uh, particularly for music and theater, there you know we're in COVID times.
2: Yeah, YouTube doesn't sure. help get a lot of money oftentimes for YouTube performances. Yeah. Well, we really appreciate you coming on. You know, you are you're a, a wealth of knowledge, and a great resource, and, and um, a servant of the church. In these ways and uh, especially in, in this topic of aesthetics, right I just feel it's something we really need to look very much uh, at in the reform perspective.
3: Well, in aesthetics, I'll mm-hmm. just say this to close, I do not fancy myself. I mean I've done formal work in epistemology, for mm-hmm. example. I've done very little formal work in aesthetics. Mm-hmm. My most of my aesthetics is just it's in mm-hmm. the application. It's mm-hmm. loving the objects of this mm-hmm. art and pursuing that. You can make aesthetics a study. Uh, or you can just enjoy mm-hmm. the art, and that's what I do.
2: I think that's a strong start for where we should really all begin in this study uh, a love for it.
1: And now we time warp back to 2023. So that was The Best of Bob on Beauty and Aesthetics with Dr. Alan Strange, Professor of Church History at Mid America Reform Seminary. We thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard, you can of course subscribe onceforalldelivered.com. You can subscribe to our Substack, support the show, follow us on social media at OFAD Podcast. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, under that handle. If you have any questions, comments, as usual, you can send it through those channels. You can email us, OFAD podcast at gmail.com you know, all the usual post-show disclaimer stuff we put here. Appreciate you taking the time to listen. I hope you're enjoying the best of Bob. We'll be back in the month of May with some new content. And in the meanwhile, we'll have a couple more of these over the next couple of weeks. In fact, I think we have one, uh, if it works out okay. We'll have some previously unreleased Bobcast content. So still something new before we get to May and uh, back to our regularly scheduled programming. Anyway... Uh, thanks for joining us and pithy sign off phrase.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode. For the latest news and updates, visit our Substack at onceforalldelivered.com, where you can also support our work with a paid subscription. You can also follow us on social media at OFAD Podcast. If you like what you have heard, leave a five star review where you get your podcasts and spread the word about the show. Once for All Delivered is hosted by Andrew Smith and Caleb Castro and produced by Andrew and Heidi Smith. A special thank you to our founding members, Eric and Kathy Hepker. We hope you will join us again next time on Once for All Delivered.